All right, I think we'll go ahead and get started. I've got 25 pages I've got to cover today. That's what happens when you finish a book. You stick everything into the last minute. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Christmas season, being able to see family again and children, just friends, just a wonderful time of the year. We're reminded of that wonderful event of our Savior becoming an infant, <clears throat> becoming one of us so that he might die in our place, that we might be saved. We thank you for such a wonderful salvation. We ask you to bless our time together in your word. We pray you give us insight and understanding into these uh, truths that are written here from James. We pray that we might make practical application to our life. Again, we thank you for this opportunity. pray for each class and student teacher uh, today as they uh, minister your word. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, enrich our hearts and lives through your, your spirit as he opens the things of Christ and shows them to us today. Commit this hour to you and this day to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in uh, James chapter 5, verses 16b through 20. We'll be concluding this study in the little epistle of James. Our lesson title is The Power of Holy Spirit Energized Behavior. I count myself... uh, Certainly fortunate to have some great believing friends over the years. <clears throat> and when it comes to prayer, I remember a dear friend of mine named Wallace Strawn. Uh, he, he stands out in my memory uh, with regard to prayer. I don't think I've ever prayed with him that it did not involve his weeping over people and the needs of people he loved and cared for. Uh, He certainly modeled to me the kind of fervent prayer and behavior that are described in our verses here this morning by by James. The little epistle of James has to do with the practical application of faith to daily living. He gives us certain diagnostic marks or tests that we can ascertain what true faith looks like. Um, I think we can infer from that, from just that statement, that uh, there were people associated with the church that are, just as they are today, that are counted as part of the church, but um, they probably are not true believers. They have some kind of a dead faith. They're, They're there for some strange reason, but not because they're regenerate. And uh, that's always the case. It's a possibility. And uh, so these are certain indications that a person is a true believer. We've noted seven of them throughout the study. Attitude attitude toward God's providence. Count it all joy when you counter all kinds of suffering. Attitude towards His Word. Be you doers of the Word, not hearers only. Uh, Reaction to class discrimination. Everybody's welcome here, not just the rich. <clears throat> production of good works. Show me your faith by your works. Um, self-control. Governing your tongue. <clears throat> uh, separation from worldliness. The wisdom from below is contrast to wisdom from above. And then he concludes the, the book by, re, by saying that uh, one mark of a true believer is he resorts uh, to God in prayer in every circumstance, whatever that might be. 
All life is to be understood and dealt with from God's perspective. And here James gives us his closing admonition to fervent prayer and caring restoration. Let me just read the passage for you. If you have your Bibles, it's uh, beginning in the latter part of verse 16 of chapter 5. He concludes the little epistle by saying, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man of a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. It did not rain on the earth three years and six months. He prayed again, the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you errs from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he that turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Notice he, first of all, mentions the fervent, uh, the duty of fervent prayer in verse 16. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Uh, it is one of our stated duties to be praying. This word prayer here is the idea, actually it's translated uh, 12 times in the scripture, prayer, uh, supplication six times, request once. Uh, it refers to any kind of petitionary prayer to God. We asking, we're asking God for something. And these are, prayer is a means of grace. Uh, by which we realize some specific need, some specific desire that we have with regard to accomplishing God's will. I can't do this, so God, please help me or help this to happen. And we bring it to Him. It's a petition that we bring to God. Uh, Then he adds this further dimension to this be praying here. uh, And it's it's an effectual, fervent prayer. I think the authorized version has it. Uh, this word uh, effectual is where we get our word energy. Uh, <clears throat> it just means to be operative, to be actively at work, uh, putting forth zealous power and effort. Uh, Wycliffe uh, translated continually praying, uh, kind of denoting the aspect of persistence and passion, working at something, employing, ex- exerting energy. So basically it, it involves spirit energized fervency or earnestness, vehemence, if you will, when we come to God with a petition. It's interesting, the same word uh, effectual or fervency or energizing is used in the realm of evil in Ephesians 2.2. 2, the spirit of disobedience is now working. spirit of disobedience is energized. It's working. It's powerful. In 2 Corinthians 4.12, it says, death is now working in us. Romans 7, 5 says that our sinful fleshly passions are aroused and at work are are energized by the wrong spirit here. What he's talking about is the Holy Spirit energized praying, if you will. Um, It's the idea that involves diligence and constancy and fervency. Certainly it is God that ultimately answers prayer, but it is also God who energizes our praying, if you will. Uh, he's, the, he's the one that enables us to overcome our reluctance and our disobedience in praying uh, to bring these things before Him. The same word is used in Philippians 2.13. It's God that's at work in you, both the willing to do His good pleasure. That's the energizing you to do His will. So this is that word to to energize, if you will. Ephesians 3.20 Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundant all we, beyond all we ask or think according to the power that's working in us. 
Um, basically, James is saying that the, <clears throat> it's this prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much because it's spirit energized. Um, it, it causes us to keep at it. it. It's not eloquence in praying, but it's passion, fervency. I mean, my friend Wallace, he wasn't eloquent, but he was passionate. He was committed. This was something he was driven to, to ask these things of God, and it affected his behavior. Um, Ephesians or Hebrews 11:6, without faith it's impossible to please him. He that comes to God must believe that he is. He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Um, Acts 12:5, Peter was kept in prison, and prayer was made without ceasing by the church of God for him. You have a number of uh, parables where Jesus says the neighbor, he was, he, the reason he finally gave in and gave him something was he was insistent. Please give me something. He stayed with it. And uh, that's the way we should be when we pray. The woman who, uh, the Syrophoenician woman, even the dog, she says, Lord, get the crumbs. And she was, she was persistent at it. So this is a prayer that's basically characterized as energized by the Spirit, but it's also very persistent. And this kind of prayer demands effort. <clears throat> We're often weak, like Moses' hands grew weary and fell down. Uh, so we certainly need the Lord to lift up our soul in these efforts. Um, and very often it's when we encounter something, we've reached the end of our rope or we've come to an issue where we're at our wit's end, we're at our extremities, if you will. Some distressing, desperate situation, certainly requiring God, we understand at that point, I can't do that, I can't now give him one of these now lay me down to sleep prayers. This is one of those things, God, you're going to have to do something, so we cry out to God. Usually it involves something asking for something audacious, something great, and expecting we, we... This kind of prayer asks us to ask for great things and expect great things from God. Here's Joshua. Let the sun stand still. And that's pretty audacious, isn't it? God, stop the sun from traveling. We've got, a, we've got a battle to win here. I remember when we were first saved, a little chapel memorial Baptist church over here, the little piddly handful of people and struggling to make our, keep the lights on in the church. I mean, it was just, everybody there were dirt poor. And one of the guys in the prayer meeting one night was saying, God, give us a bus so we can go out and reach the kids in the neighborhood. And we're, I'm looking at this guy like, what planet are you from? We can't even pay the bills. I, in six months, we had five buses. It's like, I mean, you got to have people like this that take a... Uh, Zechariah. Let's just flip over there. This is a great passage. I love Zechariah. I've been reading commentary on it. But he says here in Zechariah 4, <clears throat> he answered and said to me, verse 6, This is the word from the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Who are you, O great mountain before King Jesus? Or Zerubbabel. So here's it. It's like Jesus saying, if you just had the faith of a grain of mustard seed and you could say to this mountain, be thou removed and cast in the sea and be done to you. This is the kind of praying that I'm talking about here. Where you look at God and you say, you know, Lord, I, I really, you're going to have to do something here. So it, it, it asks great things and expects great things from God. And I think that's the kind of praying, praying 
that he's talking about here. Notice the qualifier or the requirement for this kind of praying is a righteous man. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplished much. Um, <clears throat> this word righteous is a standard word throughout the New Testament. It occurs about 81 times. Broadly speaking, it, just, uh, it, it speaks about someone that's just been justified by faith in Christ. He's just uh, someone that's been redeemed. Um, <clears throat> and, and basically, the, uh, it, it stresses here upon the consequent ethical behavior, the character of this person that has been made righteous through the finished work of Christ is someone that basically is committed to Christ and is sincerely seeking His will. This is who we're talking about. I have somebody that you know, this lollygags along says, yeah, I think I want a new car. God, give me this car. That's not the point. This is someone that knows Christ, wants Christ's will to be done, and he's asking for that specifically. He's committed to that. <clears throat> Scripture says, basically, in Proverbs fifteen twenty nine, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. This is the righteous that we're talking about here. Effectual, fervent prayer of the righteous, if you will. Uh, John 9.31 says, Now we know that God doesn't hear sinners. If any man is a worshiper of God, he does his will, he hears him. Proverbs 34.15, The eyes of the Lord upon the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. So this is a kind of a qualifier here in this prayer, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, he goes on to say, can accomplish much. Uh, this word accomplish <clears throat> carries the sense of uh, will affect much. It has the ability, the power, the strength to to be effective. Um, <clears throat> same word that's used with regard to if salt has lost its savor, it it's good for nothing. It can't accomplish anything. It, it, this is the word that's used there. It, it, salt without without a savor here accomplishes nothing. Um, Acts 19.20, God's Word prevailed mightily. It was powerfully effective, if you will, during the early church. Uh, Paul says in, that Galatians, in Galatians 5.6, circumcision has no, no power to produce righteousness. It, it can't affect righteousness. Some, some outward ceremony, that has nothing to do. It won't affect anything. All the hocus-pocus you go through, that doesn't affect anything. It's the Spirit of God that causes this. And it's also used here in Philippians 4.13 where Paul says, I can do, any, do all things through Christ who strengthened me. I can accomplish all things. It, I, God can use me in an effective way. And notice that the consequence here is accomplish, and it also adds the word much or many. <clears throat> it's interesting that here in the English, the sentence ends with much. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplished much in, in, in the original language, much is the first word. The emphasis is on the greatness of what this can do. Uh, it's in the position, it's usually called in, emphatic position. And the sentence actually reads, much is strong, a petition of the righteous man being made effective. Much! He starts out telling you, much can be done by this. And so that's the emphasis here is on the, the power to a great degree here. It emphasizes much ability. It doesn't say how much. It just says it's powerful. So prayer is one of the... And let me just add this little note. Prayer is probably the, absolutely the most short-changed grace in the Christian life. 
We just don't, you know, it's now lay me down to sleep. That's most of, that's most of my praying, you know, all right? But it, it's a short change grace of God where we actually connect with heaven in this business. Where we actually come to God and cry out, Oh, Zerubbabel, remove this mountain, this great mountain. The mountain shall be made a plain. I mean, it looks like a great man. I can't do anything, so I bring it to God. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. So this is, when we can get down on our knees before God, that's what should be running in the back of our mind. Call unto me, and I'll answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things. So the speaks begin here. He, he speaks about a, a fervent diligence in prayer, if you will. Uh, <clears throat> then he gives this encouraging illustration for us, and uh, the person here is Elijah that he's going to refer to as an illust- here's an illustration of of effectual fervent prayer, if you will. It's the person Elijah, the fourth person he mentions in from the Old Testament in his little epistle here. Uh, he mentioned Abraham. Uh, Rahab, and then uh, Job. Now he mentions Elijah. Uh, Elijah occurs, his name occurs 30 times in the New Testament. Um, basically, it's a, he's a person that held uh, an enormous respect and popularity among first century Jews. Almost, they almost thought of Elijah as almost semi-divine person. It's like, oh, Elijah. It's that kind of a thing. Whoa, it's Elijah here. Uh, kind of a veneration of this person. Keep in mind, this is a guy called Fire Down from Heaven. Uh, he's the last person mentioned in the Old Testament. I mean, the Old Testament ends with who? Elijah. And the New Testament begins with Elijah. It's John the Baptist, but actually he comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So he's a very important man bringing the Old Testament and New Testament together, if you will. Uh, he's, a, he's an interesting person. He, when he died, he doesn't pass through the normal channels of death, but is translated or snatched away. He's seized and taken directly to heaven. Talk about an exit. Now, he had a real exit. You know, Del, Elvis may have left the building, but boy, when Elijah left, he really left. Chariot of fire came down, swooped him away, and hauled him to heaven here. Um, even on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus is transfigured before the disciples, he was there. <laughs> he shows up with Moses, Moses and Elijah. And it's interesting also that when Jesus cries out from the cross, people thought he was crying for Elijah to come and help him. He's a very powerful figure in the minds of his audience that, that James is writing to. And he basically says, <clears throat> he uses him as an example Basically, because he was a man with a nature like ours. So the immediate stress here on Elijah is not upon all his great works, but on the fact that he was just a normal human being. Uh, He's disarming our natural attitude that thinks, man, I can never do that. I can never be like him. I can never be like Wallace. I can never do this. I couldn't do that. Um, Basically, what he said... The, the comparison is, is a reminder to us that this power of spirit-energized praying is not limited to super saints, but it's available to all believers. He's just like us, the emphasis here. He's not supernatural. He's not some kind of supernatural angelic being who glowed or floated on the ground. His feet never does it. He wasn't anything like He was just a person just like any other person. Um, 
Ethelbert says, a spiritual giant is an ordinary human being like yourself who takes God at His word. That's a spiritual giant. And it's sad that that's what a spiritual giant is. It's an ordinary human being that just takes God at His word. And I think that's true. Um, all throughout the Scripture, you have the New Testament, you have the, uh, the instance where uh, Cornelius falls down to worship Peter and he tells him, don't do that, I'm just a man. Uh, they did it for... Uh, <clears throat> Paul and Barnabas, I believe, they thought he was, uh, Barnabas was Zeus and Paul was Hermes and they were worshiping and he's telling stop that, we're just ordinary men. Uh, <clears throat> Thomas Manton says, consistent continuance in sin denies a person to be a saint, but the uninterrupted continuance in holiness would deny them to be men. So we're just fallible human beings, alright? And that's what he was and this is the illustration that he used. The same Elijah on Mount Carmel that withstood 450 prophets of Baal, <clears throat> that 450 to one odds, you wouldn't bet on a horse with those odds, but uh, he, he overcame that, if you will. Uh, yet later, when the, he expected this, all this to, to have an effect on the king and the queen, Jezebel made her harder. She was going to kill, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to see that you're dead. And, and he, he's fearful of her. He runs away. He's depressed. He's, um, uh, <clears throat> he, he certainly is frustrated, fearful. Uh, I mentioned depressed. Depression is a human trait that indicates capacity for greatness. Some of you get depressed. That's a human trait that says this person has some real capacity for greatness. Certainly that's true of him. Uh, we feel this way sometimes. But the focus here on James, the fact that he's just an ordinary man whose prayers had tremendous power. They were effectual, if you will. He, notice what he tells us what he did. He, Elijah was a man just like us. And he says, and he prayed earnestly. Um, it's interesting, he uses a literary device called reduplication. We find a lot in the scripture, but the idea is to convey intensity. Uh, whenever the scripture wants to intensify something, it just doubles what he what it says here. Um, here he, he actually literally says he prayed with praying. He prayed with praying. He prayed earnestly. So when 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 they use this uh, uh, this uh, literary device of reduplication, it just it, it intensifies what they want to say. It begins in Genesis 2.17, uh, 2, But of the tree and the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. It doesn't say surely. It says dying, you shall die. It's a reduplication. It's a, an it intensifies something. Jonah 1.10, And the men were exceedingly afraid. The sailors, when they heard he was the God of the heavens and the earth and the sea, it says, then they were really afraid. Actually, it doesn't say exceeding. It says they Feared a great fear. So they just, it's a reduplication. It's a literary device. Um, Jesus said, I earnestly desired to eat this. I've desired with desire to eat this feast, this Passover for a supper. Uh, it does this all, all through the scripture. It's called reduplication. That's what he's done here. And this, he prayed with praying. Uh, he prayed fervently. Uh, Elijah's praying was spirit-energized praying. It involved diligence, constancy, fervency. Um, <clears throat> he gives himself to prayer. James says that he prayed. 
the critics like to point out that the Old Testament never once says that Elijah ever prayed. The Old Testament word for praying isn't there. He doesn't. It's like, see, the, this is the contrast between the Old Testament and New Testament. He never prayed. <clears throat> what the Old Testament actually says, if you read it, First Kings seven seventeen one says, and Elijah the Tishbite, who was the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord God lives, before whom I stand. That's an Old Testament idiom for praying. The God before whom I stand. It's like, have you have you eaten lunch? Or, or have you had lunch? We mean, have you eaten? We use one word for something else. It's an idiom. We do that all the time. It's almost like you have to learn English and the grammar to understand what the meaning is some, of some of these things. Uh, you have Jeremiah 15.1. The Lord said through me, uh, though Moses and Samuel stood before me, though Moses and Samuel prayed to me, that's what he's saying. That's what that means. Uh, Genesis eighteen twenty two, and the men turned their faces from there and went toward Sodom, and Abraham stood before the Lord. What was he doing? He was praying. That's what he was doing. That's the that's the idea. So forget the critics; they're always looking for something a little little catch thing to make. The Bible is absolutely reliable in everything that it says and implies, all right? So you can believe the Bible. Notice what he asked, that it might not rain. <clears throat> this is the content or the purpose of his praying. Um, he basically, he says, uh, he stands before the king and says, uh, you're not going to get any more rain. Uh, he he kind of gives this announcement back in 1 Kings 17.1. Uh, actually, it indicates, in, whenever he says, you're not going to get any more rain, to king... Um, uh, Ahab, uh, he, he, he means he clearly understood God's word. If you look back in Deuteronomy 11, <clears throat> so I can find that here. Deuteronomy 11, Exodus. Deuteronomy 11. Notice it says in verse 13, and it shall come about if you listen obedient to, obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, talking to Israel to love the Lord your God and serve Him with all your heart and all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season. The early, the latter rain, you may gather your grain, your new wine, your oil. And I will give you grass for your field, your cattle. You shall eat and be satisfied. Beware, however, lest your hearts be deceived and you turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or anger the Lord will be kindled against you and He will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain. So when He tells the Ahab the king, there's not going to be any rain. He just is telling them what God has already said. He's not, you know, I wonder what I could do to impress the king. I think I'll just turn off the rain. No, he's, he looks back at Scripture. God said he was going to turn off the rain if you disobey him. And so he sees this disobedience. He clearly understands God's, God's will. Kind of an audacious, audacious, confident statement here. Uh, according to my word. So here's a prophet who says, according to my word, it's not going to rain. Uh, certainly he spoke with delegated authority from God Almighty, but a, a prophet or any preacher's word is only as good as it adheres to God's word. I mean, he, he's, his, it didn't mean anything unless God said it. That's what, that's what made the difference right there. It wasn't because he, he thought of a new deal, something's going to happen, you know. God said it, so he's just he's just stepping out on faith. Someone who believed God's word. Uh, I think clarity, uh, assurance from the word of God brings a sense of fervency when we pray. 
when we, we understand God's will, then we can pray clearly, and there's a sense of fervency that comes with it. So he asked that it might not rain. Notice the first result. It didn't rain in the earth for three, and a half, three years and six months. Three and a half years. Certainly, answers to prayer always serve the purpose and plan of God. That should be that that should be first on your list, okay? Whatever I pray for, it should be it should reflect something with regard to the plan and the will of God, the purpose of God. Uh, so in this case, drought was a punishment for this adulterous kingdom, idolatrous kingdom of Ahab and Jezebel. They were wholly given to Baal worship. By the way, Baal was the one that's supposed to send the rain. And Elijah's kind of in your face, Baal. You're not going to, no rain. They can cry to Baal all they want to, but he's not the one in charge of the rain, all right? And so he, he, he says this is going to be shut off, if you will. Uh, it's interesting that in 1 Kings 18:18, 18, 18, Elijah answered and said, uh, he's always called the troubler of Israel. Elijah was, a, and, a, and a real prophet, a real preacher is a troubler. He's, you troublemaker, <laughs> you're always causing trouble for us. Here. But he says, um, and he says, I haven't troubled Israel, but you, your father's house, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you followed Baal. He's just quoting Deuteronomy 11. He just quotes back to him, it's not me that's troubling Israel, you're the one that brought all this on you. It's also interesting that the Old Testament doesn't give us any duration of the drought. It just says after many days, 1 Kings 18.1. This is an Old Testament fact that is known only in the New Testament. How long was this? How long did he stop the rain? Three and a half years. doesn't say that in the Old Testament. You won't know that by reading the Old Testament. The New Testament tells us. It adds, if you will. Uh, it doesn't change. The New Testament never changes the Old Testament. But it will add add supplement to it. It will in, enlarge it and give us better understanding of what it meant, what they understood. Um, when you look at Luke four twenty five, I tell you the truth: many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. There's a date, you know, three years six months, and then here three years six months. So the New Testament very often gives us more information. For instance. It was Jans and Jamries that, that withstood Moses before Pharaoh. It doesn't tell us that in the Old Testament. It tells us in the New Testament. Um, Jude 1, 14 speaks of Enoch. The seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, The Lord came with 10,000 of his saints. I, we don't know that. You read, he prophesied? He told about the Lord coming? It doesn't say that in the Old Testament. It says it in the New Testament. Apparently it was true. Um, and of course, uh, three and a half, uh, three and a half years, uh, basically is, is a period of judgment. Uh, it kind of prophetically associated with a period of divine judgment. Daniel seven uh, speaks of that uh, 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 great words against the Most High shall wear out the saints. The Most High to think changes of times and laws shall be given. Talking about the future great tribulation time. There'll be a times time and times and dividing of time. Three and a half years, basically. And in Revelation 11, 6 and 11 talks about uh, the two witnesses have the power to shut off the heavens, the rain from heaven, and that during this period of three and a half years. Uh, after three days and a half, all right, so three and a half years. Revelation 12 talks about this as well. Time, times, and a half time. It's just a book of Revelation is a great book. I love it. 
It, it lives up to its name. It's not an apocryphal book. It's not a hidden book. It's not an obscure book. It's revelation. It's a revealing book. It's not to hide things. It's to reveal Jesus Christ and His future, if you will. So basically, it uses this three and a half years as a period of great tribulation. That's what happened in the Old Testament. Elijah, if you will. He prayed again. So he stopped the rain. He prayed again. Um, after this, uh, the fire fell, the, now the rain's going to fall. It's also interesting that after, after this, all the people cried out, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is a Jehovah. He is God. The word Je- Elijah is the Lord, He is God. <laughs> Elijah, Elijah, Elijah. Lord, He's God. He's living up to His name, if you will. Um, but anyway, he is a guy that can shut off the rain. I, I guess uh, something Russia and China are working on now, trying to do. They shut up. Take control of the weather. It's a big deal, isn't it? I think we're getting pretty close to God coming down and controlling the weather. But anyway, uh, so here we come to this caring restoration. Uh, he has this uh, duty of a, a fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man. He uses Elijah as the illustration here. And the great things that he accomplished just because he believed God, he, he understood God's word and his will, and he applied that to his praying, and it, and it, happened. it came to pass, if you will. Then he adds this caring restoration in these last two verses where he, he doesn't conclude by giving us the normal, uh, usual personal greetings, you know, uh, tell Timothy hi, this is kind of stuff, send me the books, and nothing like that. Um, we usually find in New Testament epistles. But here he stresses this loving corporate responsibility that Christians have toward one another. He closes the book with that. There's this, this loving corporate responsibility that we have that we're to be expressing toward one another. Showing personal concern for a brother that's suffering or a brother that's erred in some way by praying for them and personally effort to restore them and in some cases, maybe even evangelize them, win them to Christ in, that, in some cases. Um, I think it's kind of a blanket statement because it, we don't know who's saved. I don't know who's saved. We can't see a purple mark on your back or anything like that. I don't know. Only God knows. So we just assume, you know, if you don't have these marks of salvation, then maybe you need some evangelism here. But anyway, he addresses the my brothers, he says. Um, <clears throat> Basically, this is a, a, a compassionate uh, statement, expression, if you will. It occurs 15 times in this little letter. Brothers, my brothers. Very um, loving, warm, a sympathetic concern for those that are part of Christ's church. Um, he, he said a lot of harsh things, uh, uh, tough things uh, to hear. Uh, critical words, but the aim is is not to condemn people, but to restore people. Uh, and I think the church needs to be seen as a um, a redemptive brotherhood. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, so notice the concern here. Those addressed are brethren. The concern if one of you wanders from the truth, um, uh, subjunctive mood, the realm of possibility. If it should happen that one of you, this hypothetical situation. Uh, that one of the members in the local assembly that he's writing to and to us as well um, should should uh, some somehow err 
if you will, succumb to uh, either the frailty of human nature or, or the insults of the world. Remember, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved the present world. The world got to him. Sometimes the flesh gets to us. It, all kinds of things can, can cause us to err here, be led astray. Um, in some cases, not totally. In some cases, it may well be. But certainly, if you're a believer, uh, you cannot be led astray totally and finally because of the predestination of God and the efficacious protection of God, Matthew 24. If it were possible, he would deceive even the very elect, but it's not possible. If it were possible, you could deceive the elect, but it's not possible that the elect be deceived. Notice, if one of you should wander, this is a word where we get, our, we get the English word, the planet. They're wandering stars. These things move. They're not, other stars are fixed where they are. Planets tend to wander and move around the heavens. And the word planet it just involves a, a straying around. Um, and so he's saying here, if one of you can be drawn away by either fanatical agents of the kingdom of darkness who lie in wait to seduce us, or inadvertently of his own accord and consciously wander off like a sheep. Uh, sheep do that all the time. That's why we need a shepherd. We're, straying away, always getting getting off the beaten path. Uh, either way, it's still personally accountable before God and stands in pretty grave danger here. Uh, Paul uses this in this word to wander, this word planet, in First um, Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is the root of all evil, which some have coveted after and have erred from the faith. They've wandered off from the faith. They've been drawn away from the faith. Um, Remember the Pharisees, I guess, came to Jesus. Sadducees, you know, this man had so many wives, and when he gets to heaven, whose wife shall he be? Jesus says, you're mistaken. You've wandered from the truth. You've erred from the truth. Um, Timothy, or Titus 3.5, uh, we were once foolish and deceived. We once erred. We once were in error, wandering in the wrong direction. And then... Uh, Peter, 1 Peter 2.25 speaks of us. We were like sheep, straying, wandering away, needing the great shepherd. So, basically, it's, <clears throat> brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, where are they wandering from? From the truth. This denotes the whole body of revealed truth. It's not wandering from truthfulness, and he's always lying. It's not that. It's, he's wandered from the truth of the gospel of Christ, if you will. Uh, it's that that truth which makes you free. The gospel—that's the truth. He's talking. You've wandered from the truth of the gospel, and this is a real serious departure. And when people wander away, stray away from the truth of the gospel, they wind up in all kinds of problems. Two basic problems: false doctrine and immoral practice. Doctrine and practice; those are the two areas that. that a person needs to we need to consider here first timothy 218 concerning the truth have erred saying that the resurrection remember hymenius and whatever his name was they have erred they've wandered away from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened um, <clears throat> and then in their immoral practices you have first uh, corinthians 511 it's written you're not to keep company with any man who's called a brother who's an immoral person who's wandering away from the truth Walking in the truth involves biblical behavior based on gospel beliefs. Walking in the truth involves biblical behavior based on gospel truth, if you will. 
And so basically the, the idea here is to, uh, these people have wandered away from the truth of the gospel. 1 John 1, 6, so we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not do the truth. We're not walking in the truth. Um, to wander from the truth of the right path is this, uh, uh, actually it's a loss of a vital relationship with the, with the church which is the ground and pillar of truth, and Jesus Christ Himself, who is the way, the truth, and the life. So these issues involve both the church and Jesus Christ. He, he, certainly Christ is the embodiment of truth, and the church upholds those things. So basically you have this, <clears throat> the address there is to brothers, the concern, you've wandered away from the truth, the rescue here, and someone should bring him back. Uh, this is kind of an indefinite someone here, a restoring agent. That's what you are. Someone's wandered from the truth, and you realize that. You then become the restoring agent that God will use to reach out in loving concern to this wanderer. And it's not just the elders or the deacons. It's, it's all of us. Unlike Cain, we are our brother's keeper. And if... if the Old Testament, if, if, you're, if it was your duty to take care of livestock that wandered away, it's even more important that we take care of people who have wandered away and take care of them and show a vested interest in their care, their, their behavior, if you will. So it's not necessarily, let's say, this wanderer, this strayer away from the truth, he's not just waiting on pins and needles hoping you'll come and address him. He's not going to be giddy whenever you come to him saying, you know, we need to talk. <laughs> He's not waiting to be brought back to the truth. Error is always touchy, prideful, quick to anger, argumentative. Uh, we don't like to have our sins pointed out. Anybody like that? I, I, I don't know anybody. Oh, yeah, just keep hitting me with that. You know, I love getting smacked over the head. You know, We don't like that, and they're not going to like it either. Um we need to tactfully instruct or reprove or whatever it is, this wandering one, this one that has planetary behavior. <laughs> His behavior, he's wandering from the truth, if you will. And this is a difficult task, this restoring. Um, Paul tells in Galatians 4, 6, have I become your enemy because I've told you the truth? That's exactly the first response of this person. is, You're my enemy here. And you're really not. You're the only friend they've really got. They they can't see it, but they certainly think that way. So restoring here may involve pulling them with violence of the violence of an angel out of the fires of Sodom. I mean, it may be that something that drastic, if you will. Um, Guy King says they may refuse to let you speak to them about God, but they can't stop you from talking to God about them. So here we have prayer entering into the situation, where you know if they totally won't let you. Talk to them. Buddy, you can pray for them. You can pray like Wallace, crying for, before God for their soul, for God would work at their heart, their life. And if someone should bring him back, and this is the word, turn back, it's actually achieved a technical significance of conversion with regard to salvation, if you will. Turn from darkness to life. Turn to God from idols, Paul says. Um, it can also 
be, be someone like Peter, where Jesus said, you know, when you're converted, then shepherd the sheep. Peter was already converted spiritually, but he needed to be turned back. And this is the, so it applies to the saved as well as the lost. It, this person needs to be restored by being, by being turned back, if you will, to the truth. And notice the, re, the assured results here in, in verse 20. Let him know that he that turns a sinner from the error of his ways. Uh, the consideration here is that this confrontation and the dealing with somebody that, uh, that's, that's wandering away in this planetary behavior, if you will, the restoring agent here is to remember this. Keep this in mind. Uh, when you confront someone who's missed the mark of God's will and strayed from the truth, uh, you're to focus on the benefits of that. Not whether you've offended him, what will people think. That's not what you should be thinking about. You should, you should be thinking of the benefits. If this person turns, turns from the error of his ways, think of the wonder, the, the beauty of that. Uh, we, don't, we don't think of focus on the... Well, I'm too afraid to do it. I'm too embarrassed, or he might hate me. Uh, The idea here is he's. uh, You need to address this person, thinking in terms of what this can accomplish for that person, uh, turning them from the error of their ways. And notice also, notice he shifts here from erring from the truth to the error of his way. Errors in doctrine result in errors in practice. Uh, Jude says, likewise, these filthy dreamers have defiled the flesh, despised dominion, speak evil of dignitaries. Talking about people that have wandered away from the faith. And he uses the word dreamer. A dreamer is someone, I think he's talking about someone uh, whose belief system is not in touch with reality. This is reality. Anything outside of this, dreamer. You're dreaming. It's, it's a fool's dream. It's an error. This is not a dream. This is reality. And so basically, you're waking them up to the reality of God's Word here, according to Jude, if you will. So it's no benefit to them if they are left in their self-destructive course. Uh, and actually, it's an offense to Christ for us to ignore them. Jesus wants us to do this. He wants us to restore those that are error, those that are straying away, if you will. Uh, and again, it's uh, uh, the consequence here, he says, is that you're going to restore this person uh, from death. You will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sin. The consequences of our, 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 restore, our confronting a person to restore. The consequence, you will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sin. So, and, and usually this situation... It's usually, it, it is hopeless, humanly speaking. Isn't it? It's just hopeless. I, I've got some grandkids. <laughs> you know, it it's, looks, looks hopeless. But this is the, that great mountain that Zerubbabel can make a plain. And I have to bring it to him. I have to keep bringing this to him. You will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So it accomplishes two things. It saves from death and it covers the multitude of sins. Saving from death, talk about all the loving Christian things to do for someone. This has to be the greatest. And we know that only God can save a soul. You can't save anybody. I can't save anybody. I can't save a sinner. 
But how does God do that? How does God do that? He uses you and me. He uses us to do that. To do His will. Uh, we are laborers together with God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.9. Notice he says, save a soul from death. The word soul here denotes the whole person. Uh, Actually, a soul is um, the spiritual essence, the personality being expressed through a physical body. That's a soul. That's a soul. The spiritual essence of who I am expressed through this this body that's deteriorating, if you will. Uh, actually, there's no biblical theology that promises heaven without earth. You will always have a body. You always have had a body. God created you with a body. He created Adam and Eve with bodies and breathed into that body is spirit. And that's what makes us human. We're spirit uh Operated bodies, if you will. This is our house. And one day we're going to get a new house. And just like our spirit was renewed at regeneration, our body's going to be renewed at glory. That's a wonderful aspect. And what a great hope. Uh, You're going to save this whole person here. Uh, You'll be changed and fashioned, if you will. Uh, Save them from what? From death. And this stresses the seriousness of their condition in erring and wandering off from the truth. Uh, death can refer to physical death. And in some cases it does. Uh, <clears throat> there is a sin unto death, Scripture says, 1 John 5.16. People that have abused the Lord's Supper, some of them are asleep. So God can take you out. You know, He can take you out anytime He wants to. I mean, you know, He's not... <laughs> He's not committed for you to live on this planet forever as, as you are. It's going to change. This planet's going to change as well. But he, there is a, there's a thing where God does take even believers out. And then there's moral death. This is the loss of real life, true life. Involves uh, living in sin, emptiness, frustration, delusional thinking, looking for love in all the wrong places. 1 Timothy 5.6 She that lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. Deliver them from that death that, that they're living. They think they're alive, but they're really dead to God and truth. You're restoring a soul from death, if you will. Um, the wages of every sin is death and tends toward damnation. Uh, James doesn't say that the wanderer was spiritually... Every wanderer is a spiritually reprobate sinner and there's no hope for them. Uh, but he says they are... Uh, they're, they're, they're living in a... In, they're, actually, they're dying while they're living and they'll be saved from death, which is uh, un, unmistakably lies at the end of that kind of path, that wandering through that broad broad path. Um, <clears throat> departing from the truth, we will, is always dangerous. Uh, sin is always destructive, uh, and, it, and its work in our life has to be broken, or it will surely result, result in the deserved death of the soul and eternal separation from God. If sin isn't taken care of, then you will eternally die. That's the truth. Um, he... James 1.15 has already told us that when death has conceived, it brings forth, when sin has conceived, it brings forth death. 
Um, so certainly you're saving when you restore a person, when your desire is to restore them to the truth, your desire is to rescue them from physical or even moral death, certainly. Um, and, and it covers a multitude. The second result here is that it covers a multitude of sin. The saving restoration and forgiveness, uh, the multitude of sins are covered. And this word means to hide or put a veil over. It's the word uh, reflects uh, Noah's two sons when they backed up and covered their father's nakedness. This is that idea, to cover the sin, the nakedness of someone. Um, certainly only God has the prerogative to atone for sin, to forgive the sinner. He does that through the atoning sacrifice of Christ. But the focus here is on the instrumental means that God uses to cover a person's sin. How does He do that? He uses us. He uses us to bring them back to the truth or to lead them to the truth, uh, to the truth of, of God in Jesus Christ. Let me give you a great example. I'll try to squeeze this in. In, in Exodus <clears throat> uh, 32, the golden calf situation. And it says here in Exodus 32, verse 30, uh, And it came about on the next day that Moses said to the people, You yourself have committed a great sin. Now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for you. It doesn't mention prayer there either. <clears throat> What's he going to do? Well, pray to God there. okay? And then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin. They've made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if thou wilt, forgive their sin. And if you have your Bible open, you'll notice that little dash. When you read through your Bible one year, you ought to circle every dash that you find. That's really important. A little dash. It's like, what? There's a dash there. But if thou wilt forgive their sins... Dash. This is called an ellipsis. It's a dramatic pause for effect. I think he was pulling a wall of strong here, crying out to God, Oh God, please. If not, please blot out me from the book you've written. You see these throughout the scripture. It's always interesting. And uh, the rich man of Lazarus, he prays for his brothers. Guess what? Dash. That they may not come to this place. He prays again, dash. Oh God, please don't let this happen. So you have these these ellipses in the Scripture. You should look for those when you read through the Scripture. Always look for that. Look for that. There's a dash. Wonder what this. Wonder what's going on here. It's a dramatic pause, if you will. It's a. It's a. It's for effect. If you something's going on here. Uh, certainly, we ought to work for the mutual well-being of the church through effectual prayer, private counsel. And I think that's what he's talking about here. Um, these words in the epistle of the sermon, James, come to this abrupt close. And uh, we need to close. <laughs> We've been privileged to, to teach through the book. And we, we thank the church for letting me do this. It's been a, a blessed experience for me. Uh, but basically, he's, he's applied these tests of faith uh, to the lives of you and I, the reader, uh, he's reproved us. He slapped us around a lot. But basically, his whole point is to restore us to usefulness in the kingdom of God by becoming doers of the word. Uh, and we need to be concerned for others in the, in the local assembly. 
maybe who are straying from sound doctrine, um, we have the privilege and responsibility to seek to win them back. Uh, Proverbs 11.30, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. He that wins souls, wise, wise person. And then the Zechariah, not by power nor by my power. One is a group, huge, great hordes of power are by my single person's power, not by power nor by my, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It's spirit energized praying before God. That's really good. that can address this mountain, this great mountain. Oh, Zerubbabel, this great mountain become a plain. Who can do that? Not by might or my power, by thy spirit, saith the Lord. Spirit, energized prayer. Holy Spirit, energized prayer and behavior carries the prospects of restoring to kingdom usefulness those who are suffering physically and those who have spiritually strayed from the truth. May God make each of us restorers. Lord, we thank You for this little book of James. We pray, Lord, that it might have a practical impact on each of our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. All right, thank you. We're dismissed.